Director's Notes, Episode 345, Nicholas Pesh, The Eyes of My Mother. Welcome to Director's Notes, the podcast dedicated to the what, how and why of independent filmmaking. Here's your host, Mar Bell. Utilising exquisite black and white cinematography, rich sound design and a disturbing expression of the extremes of loneliness, Nicholas Pesh's horrifying first feature, The Eyes of My Mother, expertly hijacks your imagination for its own ends, making us see its most brutal moments in our mind's eye. Welcome to Director's Notes. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, we've got a traditional question around here, and that is, what is it that brought you to directing and filmmaking? My dad was a fashion designer and did Broadway costumes uh, when I was younger, and my parents were very involved in theater, and I grew up around all that stuff. And I think that what initially drew me to film is that it's a wonderful kind of mix of so many different mediums. There's theater, there's photography, there's music. And as a person who was so drawn to all the aspects of it, filmmaking seemed like a way that I could draw and be a musician and be an actor and get to play with all those energies without having to kind of pigeonhole myself into one thing. And then as I got more and more into it, I realized that what initially drew me to all of those mediums in the first place was being able to paint the world differently than it actually exists. And as you can tell from my film, it's very stylish and I'm not a filmmaker who like particularly values naturalism and aesthetics, but I'm more focused on being stylish in terms of aesthetic and grounded in terms of performance. And I think that it, filmmaking was a way of, yeah, just exploring another way to look at life and literally make the world look different than it actually does. You studied at NYU. Yep. How did you find the program there? And what drew you to study at NYU in the first place? I grew up right outside of New York City. And, you know, I'm like the end of the VHS generation and the beginning of the DVD generation, so watching special features on DVDs, you know, I grew up loving Scorsese and Oliver Stone and M. Night Shyamalan, and literally they had all gone to NYU. And for me, I knew that I wanted to go to film school because I don't have any connections to the industry or I didn't have any connections. I didn't, you know, have a family member who had some whatever. and. I also grew up in the suburbs where I was the only film kid, you know, I would make these weird horror movies but I didn't have a community of other filmmakers so I knew that film school was a place to just meet other kids who liked movies and I love New York City and I wasn't going to go to California for school <laughs> and, um, and so it was, NYU seemed like a really nice blend of like fine art school and film school. I felt like I went to Hogwarts. It was, it was quite fun. <laughs> I know that you've um, directed um, several music videos in the past. How did you get into that? And post-film school, did you not really do much in the realm of shorts? Yeah, when I was in school, I had made a couple shorts, and I made one short in particular that I was pretty proud of, but was very odd, and we shot it on 16mm and shot it in a doctor's office that hadn't been updated since the 70s, and it was this 
cool weird little genre thing but then after graduating I knew I couldn't bring myself to get like a real job and I'm just like not that kind of mind and I wanted to keep working and keep directing and shorts to me seemed like a way to do a lot of work and not make a lot of money and not that music videos made me any money but you know for about five years I was able to pay my New York City rent just doing like hustling doing four music videos a month and like going crazy doing it as as many as I could but what I liked about it was the first few video jobs I got were all people who had seen that weird short and were like, oh, you make stuff that looks like it was made in the 70s. That's cool. Can you do that for us? And in the beginning of my music videos, I was doing a lot of like grindhouse-y, more like aggressive, exploitation-y stuff. And it was a very loud, genre-heavy style that when someone would call me up for a job, they knew that I wasn't going to like make them a normal, bland video. They kind of knew what they were getting into. But it really gave me an opportunity to direct a lot and do a lot of these really stylized sorts of pieces and see kind of where I have to tone it down and where I can be more aggressive. And I find there's a lot of music video directors who you watch their movie and it's like, yeah, I could tell you directed music videos and it feels like <laughs> yeah. a long music video. Whereas for me, my videos never particularly felt like music videos. They always sort of felt like shorts and it became just a way for me to do really weird stuff that didn't necessarily have to appeal to a large audience and it was really experimenting, you know? It was like getting to play with all my tools and learn how to talk to crew and learn how to talk to actors and it was like boot camp of making weird, weird stuff and then eventually by the time I got to the movie it was like I had a better sense of, you know, this is too much, this isn't enough and it was just really good practice to do it over and over and over again. And then like by the time I got to making my first movie, it was like, this is a breeze. I don't have to do four of these this month, <laughs> you know? And uh, and also the process of making those music videos, isn't that pretty much how you built your crew? You brought that crew with you? Totally, and yeah, my DP who shot every one of my music videos, except for like two that I shot myself, shot my movie, and literally my whole crew on the movie was my crew that had come up doing music videos with me. So actually, my final film in film school, there was a 20-person crew, and 16 people from that 20-person crew were on my feature. Wow. And three of the four who weren't, no longer live in the country. So it was like, you know, it was a real family affair, and I had such a shorthand with all these people for so long that the actual filmmaking part of it wasn't necessarily the most challenging. Like, the actual act of making the movie was very fun, and we were used to it and the challenges were all sorts of more abstract things that like I wasn't prepared for and you realize that like yeah filmmaking is a lot more about navigating like interpersonal relationships and I had learned that doing music videos and didn't realize how much it would carry over but so much of filmmaking is yeah just like managing people and dealing with different personalities and people with different skill sets and finding the way to like marry everyone and as the director being just like the dad of the family that gets everyone excited about the same thing no matter how different they are. Most of our audience who are listening to this wouldn't have had a chance to see the film so could you um, yeah, give me a hint as to what it's about? I don't want to say too much because I think that the movie is best seen knowing as little as possible but 
It's ultimately about a young girl who, as a child, witnesses the death of her mother due to particularly violent circumstances, and the film follows her as she gets older and starts to take on distinctly dark curiosities. Yeah, it's a movie about loneliness and about looking for companionship and family. I read something that earlier on, in the early drafts, the film was a lot more violent. I mean, one of the great strengths of the film is, and I mentioned it there in my intro, yeah. is it's not actually as violent as you think it is, not at all. Um, but you presume it is because your, your brain kind of goes on there. So, yeah, what made you pull back from the violence in the early scripts? Well, I think that even in the earlier drafts, when I say it was more violent, it was more that there were more instances of violence, but I was never going to show any of the violence. To me, there's no makeup artist in the world who can do the horror that your own mind can, you know? And I think that what I wanted to do with this film was force the audience to picture it themselves and do the work themselves and scare themselves rather than giving them something that they could look away from. And it becomes a way more interactive experience with the scares, forcing you to fill in the gaps and put all the pieces together. Your lead on Kiki Magales? Is that yeah, Kiko Magalayes. Yeah, Kiko Magalayes. <laughs> I knew I'd completely messed that up. <laughs> so much of the film rests on that performance, and she was involved from the very, very early stages while you were kind of doing the, the various drafts. Given that she would have had a great insight into what was required for her, what was that balance, the push back and forth between the drafts and then her input into it as to what she thought her character could do and what she could achieve as an actress? How did that process go? A lot of it was Kika as a woman has a very particular, you know, her mannerisms, the way she holds herself, the way she carries herself that you see in the film is very much her and that's why I was initially drawn to her in the first place. So it was a lot about trying to maintain some of that naturalism in her performance, however odd and otherworldly it is. But a lot of the things that she brought to it were both cultural elements and, for instance, the Fado music. I knew that I wanted to use some sort of music of that tone to connect her with her family. And Kika had just gone to Portugal right before we were shooting. And she came back and she was like, my mom listened to this one Amalia Rodriguez album on repeat the whole time I was there. And I listened to it and I was like, this is perfect. I can use this. And there were things like that and little details that she brought to it that were herself. Mm -hmm. Last year when we were at the festival, um, we caught up with Josh Mon, and um, he had mentioned Borderline Presents, and this is the first film out of that. So how did that connection, you said earlier that you didn't have filmmaking connections, how did that connection, how was that built? Um, Josh was working on his film James White, and a friend of mine who I had gone to school with was working on the film, and thought that Josh and I would get along, and he was very right, and... We worked together in post on James and kind of playing around with the cut and Josh and I working together before he even had an editor locked down, sort of playing around with the film and discovering things. And just us working together, we really, we really enjoyed it and wanted to continue. And they were at a point in their careers where they wanted to foster younger filmmakers who they saw similarities to themselves. And I think that I definitely connected with all of them in the types of movies that we like, but more so 
the types of characters that we're drawn to. And I think what's interesting is that they all make such drastically different movies. But I think the the through line is these dark characters that you have a, a really vulnerable sympathy for. And Josh saw that in my story and you know, realized that their model would very much work for my film. And we had just gotten so close over the process of making James, I felt like I was really a member of their family and they were there with me for every step of the process. And bringing their experience to the film, you know, by this point they'd made so many movies at this scale that they had gone through every sort of problem that you could have and brought that insight to me and it was invaluable. The film feels like it should be black and white, but I can imagine at the beginning of the process, you having to maybe justify, because it's kind of like, like when I watch shorts that come into us, there's often you see shorts and like, you just made that black and white because you want to see Marty and there's no reason for it to be black and white, but it kind of, it feels like it in its bone. So was that always the plan? And you know, was that something that you had to fight for at all at any stage? Um, initially in writing it, in the very early stages, I wasn't necessarily thinking about it. And it was actually a conversation that I'd had with Josh in kind of talking about the movies that I was inspired by and what we were trying to do with this movie and the style of it and using the aesthetic to be a little bit more expressionistic and the style to be an extension of the characters' minds. We felt like the black and white, it made more sense for Francisca's world than it being in color. Her world is not colorful and warm and vibrant. It's cold and stark. And just also doing it in black and white let us do things visually similarly to the way I handle violence, but just with storytelling of things being dark and letting things play in black. It has a similar effect to having the violence off screen and there being this atmosphere uh, that we don't get in films post-noir era. One of the things I found really interesting was um, you were answering a question about whether you storyboarded or not, but you shot the film yeah. twice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So how did you come to the decision that you were going to do a you know, shot shot pre-shoot, I suppose it would be, and then what did that bring to the actual shoot? Um, what freedoms or I suppose kind of what kinks were you able to work out in that pre-shoot? With a movie of this scope, and, and, you know, not even necessarily just because of its size, I think that in film there are so many variables when you're shooting. To have as few variables as possible on the day is better. And so in shooting everything beforehand, we were able to plan everything so meticulously that on the day there wasn't, like, trying to figure things out. It was only discoveries in being able to kind of craft the whole film ahead of time and seeing what works and seeing what didn't on the actual day when we'd be working things, there is a lot more opportunity for revelation and discovery just because we weren't figuring out, okay, well, where's the camera going to be and what's the blocking? We had already worked through all that when we had more time. And, you know, the nature of a movie like this is we're shooting it really quick. But beforehand, you have a little bit more flexibility and so taking the time that we did have to plan so that when we had less time, it was just a machine and, you know, the Borderline guys run everything like a military operation. And I think it's just staying as organized as possible so that you don't go crazy when things start to go astray. 
There are several absolutely gorgeously choreographed shots where we're really far back from the action. We're looking through a window and we see an entire scene play out. Can you just talk about putting that together and choreographing that action and I suppose kind of having a faith in the audience that you didn't need to get as in close there to show us things that we would be kind of our faces pressed up against the window and you know trying to puzzle these things out. I think that particularly for like the scene that you're talking about and other moments, to me the camera is another actor in the scene and so much of this film was the cinematography is very voyeuristic and particularly for the moments of violence, I wanted it to feel like you were an innocent observer watching and you shouldn't be. Like you're seeing something that you shouldn't be seeing and similarly to what I was saying before about making the audience more interactive in the scares, I think being that voyeur and trying to see, trying to kind of look and see what's going on beyond the window makes it a more interactive, engrossing experience, particularly in those darker moments. Mm -hmm. The film moves, it's weird actually, because the film feels really relaxed, but it moves at a clip watching it I was like wow we're, we're done and we're there and you've got both the speed the exhilaration but you don't feel like you're rushing through the scenes so yeah how did you find that balance especially as well you cut what did you cut it completely in three weeks I know that you cut it in three weeks up until the Sundance run but yeah. did you go back to it after that very minimally kind of the beauty of doing it so fast was there wasn't any time to second guess ourselves the editing room is very much a group effort and you know Josh and Tony and Sean and the other producers and everyone kind of putting in their input and trusting our instincts and collaborating to make it so that it wasn't this sort of um, insulated, like I went off and did my own thing and then came back and showed people. I continued to make the movie with the people that I had been making the movie with and it was very much a labor of love for all of us. and. Three weeks later, we looked at the cut we had, and it was, you know, something that we were proud of, and we continued to tweak it a little bit, but we cut it very, very fast, and that's more or less the movie that you see. Did you have that running time in your mind? Is that something that you're heading for? Is that just, that was the natural length of the film? That was the natural length of the film. The script was short, so I knew it was going to be short, and it's mostly because I don't really have attention span for uh, longer movies, but... Um, no, I think it was just kind of the natural length of the story. It's simple, it's minimal, and I didn't want to overdo it, and especially because it's slow and a little violent, a little aggressive, <laughs> a lot violent. I didn't want it to become torturous for the audience. We have the intercards and the chapters, so yeah, we've got mother, father, and family. What were you indicating to the audience with those, look, we are in this section now, we are in this section now? I want you to think about the relationship that you have with mother, father, and family, and the relationship that she has with mother, father, and family, because I think that those are similar and different in scary ways for each individual person, and to me, yeah, the movie's about loneliness and family, and each chapter kind of focuses on a different aspect of those relationships. The reactions to, to the film, I mean, there's been loads of fantastic reactions, but it seems that there's no middle ground yeah, no, for this. It's like either love it or, or hate it. How have you found the polarised? And how's it been? Have you seen it with many audiences and done Q&As? How's that process been? I knew that the movie would be polarizing and you know that's why that's why we made it the way we did. I think that 
what's been nice is the movie kind of tells you what it is within the first 10 minutes and from my experience if you're not into that you leave so we, we always get walkouts which I love but I think that what's been nice is I made the movie for a very specific audience and it's found its way to that audience and love it or hate it the people who love it really love it and the people who hate it really hate it and I think that's all you can ever ask for. The Eyes of My Mother is um, going to be available to stream and buy on December the 2nd. Second, yes. Yeah. But you've already got your next film in mind, another thriller horror. Can you tell us anything else about that at all? I'm making it with the Borderline guys again. It's uh, similarly disturbing, but in a different sort of way. It's more of a psychosexual thriller, but, you know, it's going to be aggressive and disturbing and odd and stylish and real and all the ways that eyes is and I think it's a, a progression for me in the next film very much feels like the next step eyes was a good practice and now this next one is a little bit more robust in all regards should we be sending our audience anywhere in particular online to stay up to date with what's going on with the film what's going on with um, you know you in general as far as the future stuff goes, we keep everything pretty secret, so uh, there won't be too much out there about any of the next ones until uh, they're made, but I think definitely, you know, you can follow me on Twitter, and I'm always talking about this movie, and until this comes out, there's a couple more stops along the way for the movie, and... Uh, I love hearing from fans on Twitter and stuff and like after all the screenings reading people's thoughts so please if you like or hate the movie hit me up it's at the Nick Pesh cool fantastic thank you so much for joining us this is a film that I think I've been bugging people the most about going oh my god you've got to go and see it you've got to go and Great. see it thank you so yeah my girlfriend hates you now because I could just keep Wonderful. talking about it all the time good, but good, good. thank you so much for talking to us today thank you to get show notes for this episode or post a comment, visit us at directorsnotes.com. Director's Notes is released on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 license. All other materials remain the property of our guests. Support the show by telling a friend, blogging about us, or leaving a review in iTunes. Every year, there are hundreds of great films of all types from around the world that don't get the exposure they deserve. It's our job to make obscurity a thing of the past, one film at a time.